All right, Tim, welcome back. How you doing, buddy? JP, it's been a uh, eventful Monday so far, and it's been a uh, good weekend. Uh, so, how was yours? Uh, it was good. You know, we went from eighty degrees on Saturday to like forty-five in snow yesterday. So, uh, it's springtime yeah. in Chicago. Yeah, we've got like sixty mile per hour winds today, and it's wrecking havoc on the yard work that we did uh, over the weekend. So, it is what it is. I know you hate that phrase, but it, oh, mother it weather, it mother nature, mother nature can do what she wants. It's April in Illinois, so you know what what it is today. It may not be tomorrow. So we have a, a really interesting guest. I've been looking forward to having uh, this person on, and uh, let, let's uh, let's get after it, Tim. So let's bring him on, Gary Klein. Gary, how you doing? Gary Klein and Associates. Uh, how you doing, buddy? I'm great. Thanks for asking. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> By the way, Sacramento's having the same kind of weather you guys are. Weird. Yeah. 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 It's just normal. So, Gary, you've been doing this a long time. Um, kind of talk about what you do and Gary Klein Associates. What 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 is the mission statement for you? We are working on improving the water energy carbon connection. Mm-hmm. That's what our firm focuses on. I picked up an interest in energy when I was still in college. And that's where my degree is on is energy efficiency and renewable energy. Um, and over the years, I worked on lots of different projects. But in the early 1990s, I got a call from a salesperson in California asking me how long it took to get hot water at the fixture furthest from the water heater in my house. Yeah. And I was working on space conditioning stuff, yeah. um, not water heating stuff. I wonder why you got that call. Because, you know, I worked for the state of California and you have to take yeah. calls from citizens of the state, right? You got to do that. It makes sense. That's right. And so I have a fairly simple approach. I work on the biggest problem first, work my way down the list. And when you're done, you're done. And water heating was the second biggest residential energy use, not the first. So I was working on the first biggest. So I should listen to about things on water heating because one day I'll be done with project number one. You got to work on project number two. So... I, I pretty much told this guy to go pound sand. Um, <laughs> I wasn't working on it. He called me back every month for a year. Wow, that's persistence. It's very persistent. But what was really interesting is he was telling me behaviors that my wife and I were doing to accommodate how long we were waiting for hot water to arrive. Mm. So, for example, I would go to the I would go to the kitchen to make coffee, but before I went, I turned on the shower tap. These are the old two-handled showers, right? So all hot or all cold with a T to mix out the shower head. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'd turn on the tap all hot, all the way hot, and I'd go to the kitchen to make coffee. And often I would come back and steam is billowing out of my shower stall. Yeah. But when did the hot water get there? I don't know. It beat me, right? Yeah. And I didn't wait for the coffee to finish brewing. I just started the process, right? Okay. Um, and then in the evenings, my, my wife would get ready for bed and she'd come to the, to the bedroom and master bath and turn on the sink all hot. And she'd go wander around the house, cleaning up and tidying up. You could hear her in the kitchen and the living room and other such things. And about halfway back, I'd see steam billowing out of the sink. So I'd get out of bed, turn off the tap and go back to bed. She'd come back, see the, the t- tap off, turn it on and leave, not checking the temperature, just leave. Yeah. Um, it was pretty funny. And he was telling me we were doing these things. 
finally to make him go away, I got up one Saturday morning and I stood there with a bucket and a stopwatch. And it took four gallons and four minutes until hot water arrived at our shower. Now, we had a one gallon per minute shower head. So one minute, one gallon per minute, four minutes equals four gallons. Nothing's wrong with that math. We lived in a 1,600 square foot single story slab on grade home, which was a U.S. median home the year it was built in 1978. And I could see the plumbing in the attic right above the installation because they allowed that to happen back then. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was only two gallons of water in the hot water branch pipe from the water heater to the fixture. Now, you explain why it took four gallons till hot water got there. I couldn't do it. So I called all my friends around the country and said, don't wait a year, get back to me next week. And they all did. And I found out it was getting worse, not better as houses got newer. And I knew there was a problem because by then I'd been working in our field for almost 16 years, 17 years, and it shouldn't have been getting worse as houses got more efficient. It should have been getting better. So I started looking at hot water as a system just about 30 years ago this year, and I've been working on it ever since. Do you happen to know that guy's name that called you every month? Oh, yeah, of course. You do? You want to know it? You want to know it? Well, I, I think it's pretty instrumental in starting your kind of your career, you know, well, he, consulting. He does, he does, we, we can blame Larry Aker from <laughs> Got Hot Water, uh, the demand control company, for getting me into hot water. Um, he is certainly responsible for getting me focused on hot water as a system. He deserves all the credit for it. And yes, I do know him pretty well. We've worked together on and off for many, many years since then, in fact. But Larry is the guy that would call you, or is that somebody completely oh, yeah. different? No, no, it's the oh. guy. He's the guy. Okay. He, he knows this story. He's heard me tell it. <laughs> yeah. I think I've met Larry. He, yeah, he was at the Hot Water Forum. Yeah. He was one yeah. of the booths. Yeah. So Larry has been instrumental in getting people to focus on the water energy connection. He was talking about it before it was popular. A few years later, about a decade later, I had another project at the Energy Commission where I was working with Commissioner John Giesman, um mm-hmm. as his staff lead on uh, how much energy is attached to water in California. So how many kilowatt hours does it take to move water around, treat it, pump it, whatever, water supply and wastewater treatment, all of that stuff. We did a project to look at that. And so okay. I have knowledge of hot water and I have knowledge of water as a system. This you asked about our firm and why we focus on these things. Well, yeah, carbon's attached to the energy that's used. Yes. So when you when when I ask you when did you first get into hot water it was college, right? Like you were interested in 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 that specific avenue at that point of your life. I I guess I would say that I was interested in energy efficiency uh, and renewable energy back then, and so I installed my first solar water heater in 1974. That's a few years ago. Uh, and my first PD panel in 1979 in Africa. So, yeah, my, my interest goes back a long ways. But I would say that my interest in the water energy connection and hot water as a system really took off starting about 30 years ago in the early 1990s. You know what my interest in was in uh, college? This is, this hot, is water? <laughs> no, hot water? This is serious. No, this is acid rain do you remember that like did that go away or is that still a thing like i really was interested in that yeah so it hasn't gone away i'm afraid no it hasn't but i think a lot of the attention and you know now it's all politics whether you believe it or not and global warming all that i don't even want to go down that road but you know what i'm saying yeah so when you know looking at your bio we did some research gary 
Good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let me let, let's find out what you found. I'm not well, sure. Before the call, you informed us of how to pronounce this, but where the heck is the kingdom of Lesotho? Lesotho. Very good. Um, so <laughs> Lesotho is a country surrounded by South Africa. Yeah. Um, it's um, in the mountains uh, on the of the Drakensberg Mountains. It's a part of that. Um, it's about 300 miles due south of Johannesburg. Yeah. And how did your journey take you there? Telephone call. No, what, what was the call? So when I graduated college, uh, I couldn't figure out who'd hire me. Neither could my buddy. So we started a consulting firm out of college working on energy efficiency and renewable energy stuff because that's what we'd done in college. Yeah. Um, and we had in, we had money. We were making money as consultants. It was reasonably easy to live where we were living. We were sharing houses and that kind of thing was pretty typical. So it wasn't expensive. And one day, my buddy Jack gets a call from our friend. Sorry, our buddy, my buddy Alan gets a call from our buddy Jack in Canada who'd gone home to work for the Canadian government. And he says, Alan, can you go to Lesotho to do wind energy research? Alan says, sure. Where's Lesotho? <laughs> yeah, exactly. This, this is, there were only 107 countries back then, so it was a little easier to figure it out. Well, you were thinking like Lesotho is like Northern California. Where, where we go? <laughs> yeah, no, he, we knew it was overseas. But yeah. um, we narrowed it down to two countries without a map, which I thought was pretty good. Um, and it was one of the two countries that we'd narrowed it down to. Mm -hmm. And, um, about a year and a half later, Alan goes to Lesotho for three months of consulting. I, we close our business. I moved to Syracuse, buy a house, settle into a full-time job, a career. He's gone a month. He, I get a call one Sunday and he says, they don't need me. They need you. Can you come? I said, sure. And he said, what about your job? And I said, well, if they don't give me a leave of absence, I think I'll quit. Yeah, And uh, they gave me a leave of absence. And nine months later, I was in Lesotho for six months of consulting and I stayed seven years. They granted you the seven year leave of absence, right? <laughs> well, actually, we, we, we decided that after about the fourth year, it was not going to happen. Anyone was going to come back and we just agreed to stop. Yeah. Um, Four years. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I, I I come back every couple of years. I go see the boss and the boss said, oh, we'll keep it a little longer. It doesn't cost anybody anything to keep a leave of absence open. He wasn't mm. paying me. It didn't make any difference, right? Um, yeah. And eventually, we just decided that this wasn't going to – there was no no coming back that was going to happen. So so what was your work down there? What was, what was the work in Lesotho? The first project was to look at converting biomass energy use to solar energy use. Okay. So let's put this in context. Biomass there means cow dung and wood. Yep, yep. Um, and that's what – 70, 80% of the energy that's used in rural households comes from the direct energy that's used up. Mm -hmm. um, and Lesotho is 330 clear days a year, solar clear days. Yeah, well, that's a great and place. By, by contrast, I went there from Syracuse, which has the opposite 330 cloudy days a year. Uh, you're from Chicago. You understand what I'm talking about. You know, mm -hmm. There's clouds a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. um, and so – you know, if you paint it dark and put it in the sun, the solar power is going to work pretty well. The question is how well, not if, you know. And so we had a project looking at, I think, 10 to 15 different things you could do to convert biomass energy use to solar energy use. The sun is a much more reliable resource than wind. Wind, wind requires things to move, things that move break. 
if yeah. things move and break in Africa, it's really hard to get them fixed. You're way yeah. better off with stuff that doesn't move. Very interesting. That's where we installed our first PV panels. This is back when you could power radios, lights, or lights, or lights, or lights, or lights. Uh, did I say lights? Pretty yeah. much nothing else was working yeah. on PV yeah. back then. Lights. Um, some refrigeration, but lights, lots of lights. Yeah, that's what we worked on to start with. Did a lot of stove research, energy, more energy efficient uh, cow dung and wood stoves to get more energy into the food that you're trying to cook. That's most of what the energy is used for. Space heating is a byproduct of cooking. Gary, in over 40 plus years studying and working in energy efficiency, what technology amazes you? Is there one specific technology that you've seen in your 40 plus years that made you just go, wow? Hmm. That's a really good question. No one's ever asked that one before. We got to think about that a little bit. I'll answer by a short story of what we were working on in Lesotho. We came up with a design for a very efficient cook stove that got the smoke out of the house. You could put a couple of pots on it. It was didn't. It could take small or medium-sized pieces of wood or cow dung. It was multi-fuel. It looked pretty cool. It was manufactured. Nice-looking thing. And it was a big deal for the project we were working on to have come up with this idea. It was a lot of work to get to that point. And we thought it was a great idea. And what people wanted was lights so they could read at night and power their, their radios. And so they liked the PV panels more than the cook stove. And I would say that that's been true for almost every energy-related project that's gone around the world. Um, we, as engineer types, we know that there's this huge issue with converting fuel into heat and it's hard to get and it's harder to find and it has issues with land degradation, all that kind of stuff, right? Equity issues for who has to go collect the firewood. All of those things are issues. That's not what interested people the most. Yeah. It's almost like a lifestyle in enhancement mm -hmm. technology, right? Like, yeah, you, you um, would, you would forgo like a cooktop to, to get a reading light or some light in your, yeah. yeah. And so I, of the, 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 one of the more amazing things are the, is the PV panel, which takes the sun and converts it into electricity. We started putting PV systems into homes and, and, and uh, commercial applications. We powered cash registers in the early days. Why cash registers? Well, the business owners in Lesotho don't like to do math, but they have to pay taxes. If they have the right kind of cash register, it gives a tape that says we paid so many dollars in tax today, and they send yeah. it into the, you know, to the government, and everybody's happy. And how do you power a cash register? These are electronic cash registers back in the, you know, think about this. We're talking early 80s. Yeah. Our, yeah. Um, our watches do more than those, those cash registers did. Um, yeah. And they were just small calculators with a, with a printer. We could power them. They were 12 and 24 volts. If you looked inside, you didn't need AC power. Um, you just have to find the, the power taps on after the power supply. And we could convert pretty much any cash register to run off of one or two uh, PV panels. Mind you, we're talking about 35 watt PV panels were really big panels back then. Yeah. Today, that same size is over 100 watts. Peeling the onion back a little bit further into your career, you've worked diligently on writing code and, and working with uh, associations on codes. 
How do we write simplicity into codes? Is that feasible? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We don't have long enough to talk about it. Um, I got started working on codes and standards in 2005. I was in, I worked for the Energy Commission back then. I went to the to the IATMO Uniform Plumbing Code hearing with six code change proposals, and every time I went to the mic, the answer was no. Yeah. It didn't matter what I was talking about. It's time for lunch. No, it's like why? Well, you're the energy guy. You can't be in the plumbing room. Um, yeah, and as you know, I've been in the plumbing room now since then, and I worked diligently to get to have colleagues in the water space and the energy space because they two groups don't talk together very well. Right. Um, and it seems to me that in order to have simpler code, we have to have a much better understanding of how water and energy interact in a building. Otherwise we end up writing things in the plumbing side that don't make sense from the energy side and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's no uh, synergy between the two. Right. Right. And, I would say that that's one of the biggest issues with simplifying code is that they're they're developed in stovepipes. As you know from watching who shows up at code hearings, most of the people who are there are paid by their companies to be there to make sure that their company gets something in or doesn't get hurt by what yeah. goes into the code. Okay. And so that tends to make code arbitrarily complex in ways that support one group or another. I think about how you get a simpler plumbing system, right? One of the big issues that we all talk about these days is sort of uh, managing pathogens in our plumbing systems, right? Mm -hmm. Legionella, other such things, right? A few of us did a presentation at one of the emerging water technology symposiums six or eight years ago now. It's been a while where we talked about the nexus between Legionella management, energy, and water efficiency, you don't have to give up one to get the other. You have to think differently. Right. And the answer in all three cases is less volume in the pipe. Well, volume in the pipe comes from a couple of sources. One is the architectural consideration of how far apart things are. So if you have back-to-back bathrooms where the sinks are back-to-back, not the toilets, there's a lot less pipe needed for the hot water side. But we tend to build bathrooms, back-to-back bathrooms with the toilets back-to-back and the sinks on the opposite walls. Mm-hmm. How do I know? I go into a lot of men's rooms and I don't go into women's rooms, but I'm guessing they're mirror images. Yeah. And so uh, they're not back-to-back from the hot side. There's reasons for all of that. Okay. That, that's an example where we end up with extra plumbing that we might otherwise not need. We also have rules in various uh codes and standards that say you have to have so many sinks and so many toilets per so many occupants. But the only buildings we tend to have lines in are arenas and theaters where there's intermission. Mm -hmm. But all buildings are built with an assumption that waiting in line is evil, right? You shouldn't ever have to wait in line. And there's just not a likelihood of a line at all. And so do we need as many as we currently require? You know, if I had to walk an extra 10 feet to get to a bathroom, will it kill me? No, it probably won't. But the code says you have to be so many feet and can't be any more than right. this. And it, it, it gives guidance for how many you have to put where. Well, that creates volume. So distance creates volume. And uh, somebody is responsible. Architects and codes are responsible for the distances between things, mm-hmm. which could be rethought. 
And then the other big issue is the volume of the pipe. And those rules, as you know, were established by Roy Hunter back in the 40s, right? Mm -hmm. National Mm -hmm. Bureau of Standards. Um, Great document, excellent way of thinking about hot water, hot and cold water delivery systems. Um, It creates those rules have never been changed since 1940. IATMO came out with a water demand calculator as uh, part of the water efficiency and sanitation standard in 2017. It's been in the 2018 plumbing code at UPC in 2021. It'll be in 24. That's the first major change to pipe sizing since Hunter. And it's the same method brought into the modern era with information about flow rates and numbers of fixtures rather than this water supply fixture unit, which is an amalgamation of both. And as you know, we've been working on a project to get the water demand calculator adopted into the California plumbing code. We adopt, California adopts the the uniform plumbing code as the base of its model code for the state. For the last two years, we've been working on creating documentation to show how much the plumbing code overestimates the peak water demand, which translates into bigger pipe size because you have to match the velocities for the higher flow rates. Uh, The water demand calculator um, provides a good safety margin. The code overestimates peak water flow rates in the buildings we've studied by about uh, 13 times, 5 to 27, huge range. Okay, compared to measured flow rates, we're uh, comparing to measured stuff. Um, the water demand calculator for the same buildings provides a safety margin of two to four. I don't think we need a factor of 10 safety margin for peakiness of flow. Remember, it's the 1% that we're talking about. The codes are, all this math is based on 99th percentile peak flow rates. That means 1% of the time it will be bigger. Will it harm anything? Everything will work. It just won't fill the toilets quite as fast. That's the net effect. So what you're saying is simplicity is more complex. Yeah, you, you've <laughs> yeah. got to know what you're aiming for. I, the, the answer is less volume. So we should be writing codes to have less volume in the pipe. Yeah. It would be an example of making it simpler and getting all the other things we want. I get better energy efficiency. Uh, we have better Legionella management because there's less water. Yeah. Means turnover is faster. All of those things matter. I wanted to go back and ask you, you know, you said Larry had called you every month and talked about your behaviors, you and your wife's behavior in the, in the, in your <laughs> plumbing fixtures and faucets. Right. You've written about this as behavior as being one of the single biggest variable, uh, that determines water use. You know, what are your, what's your opinion on some of these newer, you know, interconnected water heaters that, uh, you know, you know, the term internet of things that uh, they talk to each other and they, they, you know, you can have your phone and you can program your, you know, your behaviors. And it kind of, at some point it identifies your behavior and it goes on and off and heats up at certain times. Is this, is this a good thing or is this kind of pie in the sky? I would observe that um, smart controllers can't tell a good behavior from a bad behavior or an abnormal one from a normal one. It just sees it as a behavior. Yeah. I think it's nice to have the ability to override a set schedule from the point of a consumer. Mm-hmm. But we're used to putting water heaters in the corner of a garage or a basement and leaving them for there for 10 to 12 years until they die and replacing them. That's our current strategy. Yeah. Um, nope. And we don't and maintain them either, right? What's that? 
<laughs> by the way, if you want to learn how to maintain water heaters properly, there's a great book by a fellow named Larry Weingarten mm-hmm. um, called The Water Heater Workbook, mm-hmm. which he and his wife wrote, mm, got to be in the 90s now. It comes from Larry's, at that point in time, 40 years of experience as a service plumber learning how to maintain water heaters properly. Yeah. Um, he can diagnose the ills of a water heater by observation. His guy and the, his museum, he collected over a hundred water heaters and he had a water heater museum in the basement of his house near Monterey, uh, California. And that museum is now in New York city at the uh, general society of uh, mechanics and tradesmen of the city of New York founded yeah. in 1785. That, yeah. that place, right? Yeah. Um, no. And uh, that'd be a great place to do a podcast from where you could actually do some recording. It'd be yeah. great to have a meeting there. Um, the society would welcome it. Anyway, Larry Weingarten is the guy who knows how to how to do this. And that's a great reference to those who really want to know how to maintain water heaters. Larry's business was about fixing water heaters and maintaining them, not putting in new ones. He didn't like to put in new water heaters. Mm-hmm. He liked to maintain existing ones. The oldest water heater in service that he'd maintained was running for over 80 years in a very hard water area. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, so the behaviors are obviously the the biggest variable. And it's really hard to know what the behavior will be. Mm-hmm. Remember the good old days when we used to travel at the drop of a hat? Um, you'd come home from work at 4 o'clock in the afternoon realizing you have to leave at 6 a.m. in order to catch the plane because you got you're on an assignment that you didn't know about yesterday. Yeah. So your behavior today is different than your behavior tomorrow. When you're on the trip, you're not showering at home. You're not using hot water or cold water at home. The pattern is different, but it was a perfectly normal week. Normal is incredibly variable. That's the first point. And it day to day has patterns based on schedules, but the exact time you shower is not the same every day. There's windows of opportunity. You get up at 6 to get out of the house by 8 or 6.30, or you get up at 7 because you're running a little late, or you hit snooze twice. I don't know. You still have to be at work by 8 o'clock, and you have a certain drive time. So you've got to – everything has to happen between A and, you know, point A and point B to get out of the house. And But it's not identical. So you end up with windows of opportunity that the the smart controllers are trying to understand. Yeah. And – I would observe that it's hard to tell the difference between a special Tuesday and a normal Tuesday. Yeah. Um, But I do like the idea of being able to talk to your water heater and tell it that whatever schedule you thought it was on, because now we can schedule these things. They have to, you know, we didn't, we used to ignore them, but now we could schedule them. I want to make sure that I'm using my electricity when it's inexpensive to reheat the water in my storage tank. Right. And the, the electric grid wants us to do that, too. But sometimes I can't wait. Sometimes I need hotter water sooner and I need to override that control. And so I think the ability to communicate with our devices is useful. But I'm not certain I want them to learn my behaviors because it's really hard to tell if the behavior is a good one or a bad one hmm. or anything okay. else. Piggybacking off the new technology, Tim and I. Uh, we're at Ish. Have you ever been over to Ish in Germany? Jerry? I have not yet. I would love to go. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you see things like heat pumps and um, hydrogen boilers, hydrogen-assisted boilers. What are your thoughts on, on, on this stuff? 
much of what the current public policy seems to be about is decarbonizing, mm-hmm. creating less carbon output for every unit of energy input. And so I've been working on that question since the 70s, yeah. just in a different form, right? We used to call it source energy use. Source energy use implies the efficiency of conversion, includes the efficiency of conversion and implies carbon equivalence. It depends what the factors are, right? Back then there was, you had a choice of coal to make electricity or oil to make electricity. Virtually no natural gas was being used to make electricity in the early 1970s. It was oil or coal. When I went to work in California in 1990, we had seen a shift in the state of California from about 1980 to 1990, where they got off of oil-fired steam boilers and switched to gas-fired steam boilers, which is a relatively straightforward conversion. You mostly just change out the burner, right? Well, the same is going to be true for hydrogen or any other uh, less carbon-intensive fuel. You have to make sure the burners are sized properly to do the job. You have to make sure that, but how much carbon is it going to make depends on the source of the hydrogen. How do you get to the, to the raw hydrogen? From the point of view of the, and that's a straightforward change out in my opinion, whether it gets the carbon issues or less, less clear at the moment, but people are working on that piece. The other question you're asking is about heat pump technologies. So I'm going to answer by asking a different question. What's the heat rate of a standard gas water heater in a residence? 40, 50 gallon storage water heater, minimum efficiency. It's about 40,000 BTUs per hour. Close enough for this conversation. The burner is about 75% efficient when it's burning. So it puts energy into the water at about 30,000 BTUs per hour. And it takes a certain amount of time to reheat the volume of hot water that you've taken out of the tank. Okay. Mm -hmm. Whatever it is, it is. If you have a standard electric resistance water heater, same size, same volume, and a 4,500-watt element at 240 volts, it's about 15,000 BTUs per hour. So it takes twice as long to heat the same amount of water to the same temperatures with electric resistance as it does for natural gas. Most of the heat pumps on the U.S. market, the first certainly the first batch from all the main, main brands of that we're used to in the U.S., that group of water heaters heats water at about three and a half to 5,000 BTUs per hour. Call it, give it the benefit of the doubt at 5,000 BTUs per hour. It takes three times longer than resistance, which means it's six times longer than gas. And so customers don't care. They want hot water when they want it. They don't want to be holden to a long time frame to reheat. And it's not usually a problem, but it's different than we're used to. Roughly half of the U.S. water heaters, residential water heaters are gas. The other roughly half are electric resistance. And another 10%, I know it's not the math isn't right, are high efficiency water heaters, gas or electric, mostly gas. Mm-hmm. but including the new heat pumps that have been installed. We haven't hit a very high percentage of heat pump water heaters installed in the U.S. yet. Customers don't care how their toast is toasted. They don't care what technology is used. They want toast. They want it to be golden brown. They want it to be reasonably quick. They, customers are the same about their hot water use. They want hot water now, and they don't want to run out on their shower. 
they don't want to be told they have to wait four hours to heat, take their shower because the water heater hasn't recovered yet. They don't want that. How do I know? I've interviewed over 50,000 people about their hot water use in the last 30 years. I've been busy, right? I, you've seen me teach before. I ask questions. How long do you wait? What do you want? What do you expect? And yeah. people want, they expect it to be safe and reliable. They expect it to be reasonably priced and reasonably ma- well-maintained. They don't expect yeah. it to break down a lot. Yeah, it should last, um, right? Well, they, we're, we're used to 12-year cycles. Buy a new one every 12 years. That's our, our current strategy. So it's got to be a 10, 12-year window. Otherwise, we get a little upset because they're not, they're not 200 bucks anymore. They're a couple thousand dollars for fancy water heaters now. And so we want them to last well. So I think that the, the biggest issues we have with, I picked on residential heat pumps, are that they take a long time, relatively speaking. But that's a choice of how big a compressor we chose to put on them. And that's a price point problem, right? All of these things drive it down. But I know there are some heat pump water heaters uh, coming onto the market this year that the heat pump alone will have a heat rate of around twelve to 13,000 BTUs per hour, almost exactly the same as electric resistance does, okay. in which case they won't need any electric resistance elements in them. They'll be running on less than a kilowatt as opposed to four and a half kilowatts. So it's a, but it's really close in a, in, in how long it takes to reheat the water. The other big thing for this technology that we have to address is that we have to manage something we're not used to paying attention to, the ventilation requirements of the heat pump to make the hot water. Because it takes air, if it's an air source heat pump, to move through the coils in order to make the conversion of energy from cold to hot. And if you don't have the airflow figured out and the temperatures are not right, you won't get the heat pump to be very efficient at doing its job. There's a a great presentation called, um, it's about the airflow. Oh, the amazing shrinking room is the name of the presentation done by the Northwest Energy Efficiency Association. And it's a wonderful presentation about what they've been learning as you collapse the volume of space, the water heaters, the heat pump water heaters installed in, what happens to the efficiency of the water heater, and then what you need to do to make it work right as you collapse room size. It's not just swapping out a forced air furnace and putting in a you know a heat pump water heater, or like you said, there's a lot of variables. It's more th- it's more than a simple change out. It's yeah. way more than a simple change out. Change out. Well, I, Gary, I was going to say one of the variables we've not discussed are tankless. And, you know, do they help or hurt the cause? Yes. Yes, they do. <laughs> Ooh, that's kind of very, am- very ambiguous. <laughs> so so, so you, you've asked a very interesting question. Tankless allows – so let's – we can pick on tankless gas and tankless electric. It doesn't really matter. Um, there's one company that claims to have a tankless heat pump, but that's not exactly true. But it has a much higher rate heat rate, heat pump than we're used to seeing, which is part of the point I was making we want. Tankless requires keeping up with the flow rate, whether it's high or low. But if there's no stored volume, you have to keep up with the smallest and the biggest. Otherwise, something won't be quite right. The gas tankless water heaters um, have heat rates, uh, the, the, the big ones for residential scale come up at about 199,000 BTUs per hour, just under 200,000 because that's the way the rules are set, right? Right. Call it 200,000 BTUs per hour. 
it takes approximately 40,000 BTUs per hour to heat one gallon a minute, 70 degree Fahrenheit. A little more, a little less, but for this purpose, it's close enough. So that would imply about a five gallon per minute heat rate at the upper end. What if you need six? Depending on the way the controls are set, it'll either give you six at a lower delta T or it won't let you get six. It'll slow you down to maintain the temperature of the output. And so the control, the, the, the water heaters are designed to protect themselves. They, they have to be. They're an expensive piece of equipment. Yeah. At the other end of the spectrum is the, the low fire rate. Let's imagine you have a turndown ratio of 10 to 1, which is a pretty big turndown ratio for a gas burner. So a 200,000 BTUs goes down to 20,000 BTUs per hour. Well, remember, it takes 40,000 BTUs per hour to heat one gallon a minute 70F. That's a half a gallon per minute at 70F or a gallon per minute at 35F. Well, 35F isn't very hot water because you're starting at 50. It's not going to be hot water. So that's not the number. And at a half a gallon per minute, the burners don't like to fire. So it hunts. Am I on? Am I off? Am I on and off? So it turns on and off. But a half a gallon per minute as a portion of, a, of, of making hot water for a, a faucet is a pretty reasonable ex- expectation. All water heaters, in my opinion, have to have some stored volume in order to account for the really low things and the really high things Yeah. so that the burner isn't responsible for doing all of the work all of the time. Uh, burner could be element. It doesn't really matter. There's a, a match between needing some volume mm-hmm. and some burner size. So we've done some analysis of that question. And to keep up with one shower turns out to be an important consideration from the customer's point of view, right? I don't want to run out in my shower. Neither do most of the consumers I've ever talked to. By the way, they'd like to have a parental control switch for their teenager showers. Yeah, and they, exactly. and they appear to be willing to pay more for that than the water heater. I've done some test marketing. I think we can make a small fortune on it. The thing is that one shower is, if it's about a gallon and a half a minute of hot water, if you have a two gallon per minute shower head. And two gallon per minute is less than the federal max that's legal, right? And it's a bit more than what we have in California at 1.8, but it's in the order of a gallon and a half a minute of hot in the mix. Let's just use that number for the moment. Yeah, It takes about 60,000 BTUs per hour to heat a gallon and a half of water per minute. Yeah. And if your burner was between 60 and 80, depending on where you lived, you'd need a little bigger one or a little smaller one, then you wouldn't ever run out of hot water. You would never know because mostly it's the third shower in a row that's causing us trouble with our storage water heaters. That's the way the math works out. I spent a lot of time before I started working on it full time. I did this part time after work, right? I'd sit there and noodle this out to try and figure it out. That's when I started writing about it. All this stuff is predictable from first principles. So if you put in a water heater with a 60 to 80,000 BTU per hour burner gas, no one will complain. How big a tank? I don't know. Well, how about a 100,000 BTU per hour burner, which is nominally two gallons a minute? Mm-hmm. forever, which could almost mean two showers, depending on how big a shower head you needed and what climate you were in, and about a 30-gallon tank. Yeah. I was just going to say a smaller tank. Yep. Yeah. We don't need bigger tanks and or bigger burners. We need something modest of both. Yeah. Um, and that would be a much more satisfying water heater for more consumers. We've been selling consumers minimum efficiency water heaters since forever. It's a commodity marketplace. 
I would observe that very few people actually choose to drive the least expensive car on the market with the minimum efficiency. Most people want something that's upper middle in performance. And if we sold people that for water heaters, I think they would buy them. You know, Gary, in some of your talks, and we've mentioned this on the podcast, uh, you, you say that how, how long do people wait for their hot water to, to come to the, to the fixture? Sure. And uh, I'm, my house and my shower, it takes a while <laughs> for that to heat up. But uh, one of the things you say as, as a solution to this is the addition of a circulation pump. Talk about that and talk about what, what is a demand-activated pumping system. Let's explore this a little bit. I'm going to count seconds, mm-hmm. 1, 1,000, 2, 1,000, et cetera. And you tell me by yelling out or waving your hands or whatever, um, when you want the hot water to arrive, are you ready? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start counting. Are you ready? One, one thousand, two, no. one thousand, three. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> yeah. okay. You, 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 gentlemen are, are are odd, but in a little abnormal. <laughs> Most groups have actually settled on four to five seconds. Really? Yes. Okay. Um, so, as as an acceptable um, a wait time, or yeah. So let's work backwards. How long do you wait now? You wait a lot longer than two seconds now to get hot water. Oh, for sure. I wait. I wait. A minute and a half. I'm not joking. Two minutes. How much water am I wasting? Okay, so you're you're actually you're going to actually go back and measure it, and you're going to send me an email tomorrow or the next day, <laughs> and you're both going to do it. We actually have a way to measure your house on our website. Oh, um, good. We have a protocol for figuring this out. And um, what's the website? Real quick, give us give us a website. Uh, GaryKleinAssociates.com. Okay, good. Um, yep. And we have things on there called writings, and in the writings, you will see. Uh, this protocol for evaluating how your house is laid out without actually seeing the plumbing. I used to live where we had this thing called a basement. We don't get basements much in California. And if you have basements and they're unfinished, you can see your plumbing in the basement. The horizontal runs are in the basement because the water heater tends to be in the basement. And that gives you a pretty good clue how it's climbing up to the upstairs rooms. Yeah. So you get hot water quicker where you are then. I'm I'm assuming you don't No. No, because we put water heaters in garages. <laughs> okay. Um, so let's go back. I'll get to the question of the pump in a second. You've got an interesting question. When we used to build houses with gravity furnaces, there was mm-hmm. a central chimney because the gravity furnace had to be in the middle of the basement. Remember that? Mm-hmm. And they were huge monsters. Where was the water heater? as close to the chimney as you could get it because the furnace was in the way, but it was in the center of the basement. And there were no, mostly people did not have finished basements back then. It was a coal room in the old days. Remember this? This is like a long time ago. We've been doing this I a do, really long we time. We did. Our old house had that. Yeah. Right. They had a coal chute, had come down the chute, had to yes. shovel away. Real mess, right? Okay. And then we got lucky. We switched to oil or we switched to gas, depending on where we live, propane sometimes, but whatever it is. All right. When we took out the, that gravity furnace, we now could put a furnace in another location. It didn't have to be in the center. And what we did is we moved the furnace to a mechanical room on the side of the, uh, in one corner of the basement. So you could get a rec room in the basement. So you could use the space, which was taken up, used to be taken up by this enormous furnace. Well, when we did that, we moved the water heater too, and we took it from the center of the building and put it in a corner. 
that just doubled the distance to the furthest fixtures. That movement alone more than roughly doubled the distance to the fixtures. Mm-hmm. Because if there was a fixture on the other corner from where you put the mechanical room and the water heater used to be in the center, the distance to the furthest fixture just doubled. Mm-hmm. Well, in California, we don't get basements, we get garages. And if you put the water heater in the garage at the edge of the house, it's sort of like in the basement, but one floor up in the garage. Yeah. Okay. Logically, it hasn't moved very much. The worst case position would be to put the water heater at the front of the garage so you had a short gas line. That adds an extra 25 feet to whatever your plumbing run is. The question you asked is about circulators and on-demand controls. Are we talking retrofit for an existing problem or we're building new correctly? That's a good question. I, I mean, for me, personally, it would be a retrofit, but um, good. maybe So we'll, we'll pick your house. I'm guessing you wait a really long time in the master bathroom. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Now, John, I've never met your house. How did I know? There's only two places that we wait a long time. It's either the kitchen or the master bathroom. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it may be worse in other rooms, but those are the kids we don't care. So we, <laughs> and we don't know because we don't use that bathroom very often, right? We use the bathrooms that are ours. Or we're assigned to bathrooms. You get to use them. And so we know about the kitchen and we know about the master bath where we live, the bathroom we use. And it turns out that it's what we see from floor plans is that the master bath or the kitchen or both are far from the water heater. Remember I talked about architects and layouts. Somebody made decisions unbeknownst to us long before the house got built that put things far apart. Most of us don't get to design our own homes. So we wouldn't think about that. In retrofit, the question is how long does it take to get hot water to your master bathroom? So I have an experiment for you to do, which is what's on our website. And this is what I want you to do. We'll, we, we won't worry about doing everything, but you'll do the first test tomorrow. You're going to get hot water at one of the sinks in your master bathroom. You're going to turn on the tap all hot and run it until hot water hot enough to shower in shows up at the sink. Now, you don't have to use a thermometer. You could. But you've been taking showers for a lot, many, many years. You can use your hand as a pretty good estimator. I want it to be hot enough for you to be willing to get in a shower. Mm-hmm. And th- what you're going to do is write down time, and we'll come back and measure volume another day. Okay? Okay. Okay. But what I want you to do once hot water is there, I want you to go oh, – oh, by the way, the sink you pick needs to be near a GFI outlet. Okay. Because we're gonna, if we're gonna put a pump in and retrofit, we're gonna put it under a sink because it's easy yeah. to access that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the yeah. retrofit kits are designed for sinks. Okay. So once you've got hot water at that sink, I want you to go to your shower and see how long it takes to get hot water there. I almost can tell you it's gonna be longer, but it won't. How much longer? It won't be much because you probably have a trunk and branch plumbing system. Well, it's a question of where the branch occurs. Maybe that's just my perception is that it's 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 usually a bit longer, but it could be the same amount of time. No, no, you're, you're not doing it from the start. You're going to turn on the hot water at the sink. Oh. You're going to get hot water, and then I you're going you. to immediately go to the shower and see how much more time it takes. I got it. Yep, yep, I see. And okay. that extra time and volume tells you how the branches are laid out in your plumbing system. Oh. And then since you've done the experiment the last day experiment, the first day, because you can do it that way, then I want you to go to every other faucet and shower in the house. Mm-hmm. In, just do the work same. from your bathroom and go around the house and do this. Just keep You've done the experiment to get the hot water to the furthest one. Now see how long it takes to all the others. 
Yeah. And the correct way to do the experiment is to do each of them individually first day, right? First, first yeah. one up in the morning. It takes a few minutes to do the experiment, write down the answers, um, and start making a little spreadsheet. And whichever one is the longest is where you go back the last day. And we're doing the experiment in reverse. And then you do what I just described. Mm-hmm. If you find out that they don't all get better, it means you have more than one trunk. Your house is split into the east wing and the west wing, right? And so but this experiment allows us to tell. And sometimes it allows you to say, well, I thought the master bath was the worst, and it is, but it's so close to being only a few extra feet from the kitchen sink, we're going to put the pump under the kitchen sink. Mm-hmm. It, it, this is, tells us where to put one of these retrofit pump kits. Yeah. Yep, yep. And so without having to build a complete, you know, dedicated return line. Yeah. So the question then is, how do you put a, why, what kind of pump control would you put under your sink? Different manufacturers make different control strategies. You asked about the demand controlled ones, which I like the best of the bunch. We've measured them. We did an experiment. We're looking for as many ways as we could find to reduce the runtime of the pump by at least 80% compared to a 24-7 research loop, which would have a dedicated return, um, and the thermal losses of the loop by also 80%, right? Cut the runtime from 24 hours a day to less than five hours a day. Cut the energy losses of the loop from 300 therms to uh, to 60 therms. That's the goal, okay? A year. That's the, the, the idea, okay? Yeah. Um, we only found one way to do it. I looked at lots of different control strategies, timers and aquastats, times, timers and aquastats. Um, my goal is 24-7 convenience with 80% less energy use in the loop and the pump. I found lots of ways to reduce pump runtime and therefore energy use by 80%. Almost everything we experimented with did that. But I only found one way to get the energy losses of the loop down by more than 80%. And that was with demand-controlled activation. What's demand-controlled activation? John, Tim, I bet you know now when you plan to take your next shower. It's either tonight or tomorrow morning. We're either evening or morning shower people for the most part. I'm a morning shower. I'm doing it tomorrow morning, yeah. Whatever. I got to do my homework. Well, you can either take your shower then or not, but you can do the (laughs) experiment in the morning. Um, why, why morning? Because we, we, in general, we've got six or eight hours since we last used hot water. It's a good stable point to do the tech experiment. Yeah. Um, we know that, you know, we should know if anyone's been using hot water in our house at that point in time. We know now when we plan to take our next shower, I, I, I'm a morning shower guy. I usually shower after the alarm goes off. What if I had a button next to my alarm clock to tell a pump to turn on? That would be nice, right? Right. And you can have such a button. So I want to tell the pump to come on when I know I'm headed to go take my shower. And I'm a morning shower guy. So putting the button next to my alarm clock makes sense. Maybe even on my phone someday, I could have a button on my phone that says turn on pump, which we can do. That technology is available to us today. Now, how long does the pump need to run? It only needs to run long enough to get hot water around the plumbing. So from the water heater to your bathroom, so that it's hot enough to shower in in your bathroom. Assuming your bathroom's the end of the line, the rest of the line will be also hot. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. So that's what. I, so the second piece of the puzzle is how do I decide to turn off? 
if I'm putting a pump under a sink in a bathroom or a kitchen, those are the two typical sinks we're going to put it under, um, I don't really want to put hot water into the cold water side of the plumbing, do I? Because if I want to draw cold water back, I have to clear out the hot water that went to the cold side. So what the demand control activation systems that I think are the best to pick from, shut the pump off on a rise in temperature above where it started. So let's start under the sink in your bathroom the first thing in the morning. It's about the temperature of your house. The pipes on both sides are about 70 degrees. Let's just pick a number. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So what if the pump shut off at 75 degrees, five degree rise in temperature? Well, it means it's not hot enough to shower in at that sink, but the branch to the shower might be 10 feet back and the temperature at the branch is really close to 105, in which case you get in the shower. Yeah. And so we've improved time to tap, not made it perfect in retrofit. It's very hard to do, but we've made it way, way better. And we haven't put hot water onto the cold side because we shut off on a rise in temperature above where we started. Now, you can put buttons all around the house, wherever it's convenient. Um, you know when you're coming in from the garage if you're going to want to use hot water, whether it's the kitchen or a bathroom. And what if you had a button right next to the door you come into the house from? You've got a two-story house, I'm guessing, above the basement if you're in the your part of the country. Yep. Um, and so if you have a button down at the bottom of the stairs on the way upstairs, you press the button. By the time you get upstairs into the bathroom, the hot water's prime the line. The demand-controlled activation features that are important are those that tell, allow you to tell the pump when to prime the line with hot water. You don't need a timer to figure this out. You're, you're perfectly capable of pressing buttons. You turn on light switches and push buttons for your family and friends all day long. This is straightforward. We know how to do this. And then the pump controls are designed to shut off on a rise in temperature so that you don't have to think about when to turn the pump off. You can press the button once a day, uh, 10 times a day, go on vacation, don't ever press it, don't have to worry about it coming out of, out of control sequence. It's not trying to learn anything about you. It's just saying, when I'm ready to get hot water, press a button. That's the basics of the control strategy. They make them with motion sensors too. Um, I like wireless buttons uh, yeah. the best for retrofit because I don't want to have to run wires around. Um, I like the ability to talk to the pump. Yeah. When I want to talk to it. They even, one of the companies, uh, Larry Akers company actually has uh, LEDs in the, the wired push buttons. Yeah. And so if you, the LED runs when the pump is running. So if you have a, a wired LED uh, next to the sink where you put the pump, whenever you walk through, you'll be able to see, oh, the pump is running. I don't have to press the button anymore. It's a feedback loop. It makes, it makes perfect sense. So the other side of the question is, what do you do in new construction? In a new construction, you want to design the loop so the distance to the fixtures is short. Right. You asked me a question about how long people want to wait for hot water to arrive. Um, it's possible to build hot water delivery systems where you wait one second for hot water to arrive. Mm -hmm. It requires putting a small storage water heater in your faucet or in your shower head. And they have to be big enough to do both kinds of loads. So that, that's actually a fairly big water heater. That's not likely to happen. There's right. going to be some volume between the source and the use that you have to do for buildability. Where you live with basements, 
you can plumb from below more easily than we can here in California where we have slab construction for the first floor. Sure. But I would suggest that your basement looks like slab construction to me. And so you're going to plumb the basement from fixtures from above and the first floor fixtures from below and the second floor fixtures from below. Yeah. And so when you plumb from below up, it's relatively straightforward to get within five feet or less of the shower valve or the, the angle stops for the sinks. Shower valves are four feet off the floor. You can plumb up from below four feet. You'll get to mm -hmm. it in, within five. You don't want to be perfect. You want to be close. So five to six feet is one cup of water in a half-inch branch. John, you've been on the classes I've taught where I've had people hold the pipes up and stand there and do the, right? Yeah. And so we're all about the height of one cup of water and half-inch plumbing. Yeah. And so why half-inch? Because that's the minimum allowed in most of the plumbing codes. Where, where we can allow three-eighths, and we, we should, um, it has to be right size based on velocity, and we can do that. But So sinks and showers could be three-eighths from the physics point of view because the flow rates on hot or cold are under eight feet per second. We could do this without much trouble at all, um, which gives us the same distance problem, but roughly half the volume. Yeah. So if you have a cup of water in the pipe, between the source and the use, the recirc loop is five feet away under the floor. It will take eight seconds for hot water to arrive at a gallon a minute. And I use a gallon per minute because fixture flow rates are headed that way. And we're going to build the plumbing now. It's going to be there for 50 years. I want this to be future proofed a bit. Yeah, exactly. Um, if you have to plumb from above down and there's eight ounces in the pipe, you can't reach the fixture unless it's a three eighths twig. Yeah. Right. The fixture branch has to be tiny to come down that far. So I'm assuming we're going to put the main pipe between floors or under the floor in the basement, that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so those, because it's practical plumbing, you can get closer and closer. So you have to allow more seconds from plumbing from above, or you have to allow smaller diameter pipe. It's a volume problem. It's realistic to get hot water delivery within 10 to 15 seconds but that requires you to build the plumbing such that there's no more than one to two cups of water in the pipe between the source and the use. So now we have to plan the recirc loop location to get within one to two cups of every fixture. If we're allowed to use three-eighths tubing for various fixtures like faucets, we should because it gives us more length or less volume, and both of which we need for construction purposes. Yeah. And I'd still use demand-controlled activation for priming the loop because how many hours a day do you actually need hot water? In residential applications, single-family residential applications, water is off 96% of the time. It's on less than an hour. A typical household is less than an hour a day of hot water use. So why are we running a research pump any more than a few minutes a day? John, do you feel smarter? I do. I, I almost feel like I could go on Jeopardy and answer questions about the kingdom of Lesotho. Yeah. yeah. There's so much information that you just gave us in the, you know, the hour that we talked to you, but I feel like there's more to, to, to delve into. Um, oh, there's and, much. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll have to get you back on. Well, Gary, thanks for uh, jumping on. Um, this has been fun. Thank you. 
I know it's funny. You know, we talked about, oh, you asked me, he's like, is this going to be 30 minutes? And I said, yeah, probably at the most. And now we're an hour, hour plus change, in. Yeah. But yeah. we still could be talking more. I'd like to have you on down the line. Um, I think, man, just picking your brain about, about these, these topics, hot water and, and uh, right sizing pipes and high efficiency building, you know, it, it's just something that we need to keep the discussion moving along. So, uh, cool. I, so I really, a teaser for the next time. Yeah. Um, as you know, I've been working on right sizing of plumbing for some time. About yeah. a, a little more than a decade ago, I started paying attention to the pressure loss through pipe fittings. You remember Hunter's curve was first published in the early 1940s, right? It became part of plumbing code and design pretty much immediately thereafter. I was at a conference a decade or so ago, and this guy comes up to me and says, I got to show you this book. I'm sitting there with Larry Weingarten and brings us this book. He says, my great-grandfather wrote this research project, and my great-grandfather, my grandfather published it in 1941. Or I wow. could have the greats off by a generation. Yeah. Um, and a fellow named Freeman did his research project in 1892 on steel pipe and threaded and flange fittings. And the data that was published in 1941 has been picked up by our industry shortly thereafter, Hydraulic Institute and others. And it is the basis of all of our engineering tables for pressure loss through pipe and fittings. Wow. In particular, the fittings. Mm-hmm. Well, the research was done on steel pipe with threaded and flange fittings. We don't use steel pipe and threaded and flange fittings for most mm-hmm. of our plumbing mm-hmm. systems. Mm-hmm. We haven't used, we've never really used steel. We've used galvanized steel, but we've never, we don't, we, you know, copper became the, the mainstay. And then we've been into plastics for a while and we're moving to different coppers and stainlesses and all that stuff. But the re, the, there has never been an official method of test for the pressure loss through a fitting. About 10 years or so ago, 12 years now, I got started on this idea of trying to measure pressure loss through pipe and fittings because I couldn't get answers that made any sense from anybody making pipe and fittings. Mm-hmm. And so I decided I'd rather than debate it, I'd just measure it. So we did. And I will have I have information now on 70 different combinations of pipe and fittings, and I'm working to get information on more of them because we really do need to have answers for good design. As part of right sizing, by, by right sizing the flow rates to better match reality, right? Me- yeah. Measured performance, we're going to want to right size the plumbing to match, come along with it. Well, we better understand what the pressure losses through the systems are so we can do a much better job of sizing this new plumbing based on modern flows. So I've been on a kick to measure those things because I just don't like the answers I see in the table. They don't make sense. I've measured stuff and I don't get the same patterns. I neither get the same answers nor the same patterns. And if I'm not getting either, something's wrong. We have to fix it. We'll dig into that next time. How about that? Cool. Yeah. When you're ready. This has been fun. Tim, John, thank you.